From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 197 of the Killing It podcast the first podcast of 2023 yes welcome to 2023 everybody so it's always great to be here and we survived another wrap around the sun we did here's here's to another one uh gents i'm gonna ask a fun one uh what's the one thing people always seem to get wrong about you (sighs) sadly (laughs) it's my name it's sort of like you know Call me anything, but don't call me late for dinner. I say, hi, I'm Carl Polichuk. And then they say, great to meet you, Paul. I'm like, huh? <laughs> well, that's a new one. But no, it's not new to me. Let me tell you. Every third time I get introduced, that's my experience. Wow. My, now, mine is my name, too, although it is always the pronunciation of the last name. Sobel? Uh, well, so, and this is, I'll say this broadly. Europeans, particularly British always say so bell it's ah. always it's always that and of course it's sobel <laughs> and that is i don't know it, it had always been so you you spent you 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 misspent your youth in uh i UK. did and i and actually amusingly did not remember this ever being a problem in the 80s growing up i only <laughs> remember this as a problem since like you know the 2000s when i started doing business internationally but like universally like if you're not in the u.s i get so bell all the time that is and 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 this is this is a theme we didn't even plan it this way but it is on the name my problem is i go by my middle name in this world and i can tell you from all these years of experience the world is not friendly to a person who goes forms you have to fill out the name that appears on your driver's license all the ways that you get registered for tickets at at the airport uh, book a room at a hotel uh god forbid a client ever books a room for me they do it because hey we we booked a room for ryan and then that's not what my id says because <laughs> uh that's not my legal first name and then uh, i have had more than one time where i had to go to a different hotel because they were like, no, we have no more rooms for you. And you may not have that one because that's not what your ID wow. said. And it's like, there's a middle initial on the thing, dude. It's it's just a couple of letters off. And they were they were very adamant. I don't have my middle name on my credit, on my business card. I have a follow-up, Brian. Can't you get your middle name put on your driver's license? You can. Yeah, and and unlike all my credit cards, you know all three names right like that's that that's become standard practice but um you can in some states not all states will allow you to do all three names it's first name middle initial last name and then you sign it as you would with your middle name because that's what you go by and what you've signed a hundred million times in your life and then your signed name does not match your id name and there are certain countries on this planet that will ask you to leave if that yes. is the case. Or happily, by, by some mishap, I just put my entire you know first, middle, last name on my driver's license. And then, because that's all you need to get a passport, then I uh, 
paid on my passport and uh, on and well, on. And the, so. be- and the best of it is, you know, like if you do a major transaction, buy a house, buy a car, whatever, right? You got to sign official forms and you got to sign it in with your full legal name. My, my signature, I've signed it enough times. It has style. It has a little bit of panache to it, right? Like it's a signature. When I sign my first name, it looks exactly like a 12 year old is just learning <laughs> to sign exactly. his name. Because that's about the last time that I was responsible for signing my name. And I've had more than one person in financial services question whether that was really me because, you know, the last name signed there, it's very fluid. The first name, it looks like a forgery. And I'm like, Wow. Right. I did literally have to just go check and say, like, I have both my names are on there. But, oh, well. That's an, that's a, so it's all names. How about that? I know. Didn't even know. This podcast is sponsored by the Small Biz Thoughts technology community. Check us out at smallbizthoughts.org. Forms, templates, and checklists are just the start. Our community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in all available formats, plus free training, members-only programs, and the best business training available to managed service providers anywhere. Plus, we have weekly live members-only Zoom calls. The average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. We are totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Join us today at smallbizthoughts.org. Topic number one for today is an interesting story we're going to point to about somebody buying a piece of equipment, used military equipment off of eBay, thinking that what they were buying was just something to, you know, access fingerprints and iris scans. That's all good, except it was, of course, used and filled with military uh, sensitive uh, fingerprints, iris scans, and other information. Like this is literally the case of something where an old piece of military equipment just sort of got left somewhere out in the field, got lost along the way and made its way to eBay. And the reason I, I put this story up is that this is a stark reminder that your client's data is all over their equipment. So when they get rid of equipment at the end of the year, don't think just about the hard drives on the desktops, but think about the copy machines and the printers and other high-end devices that store information that may include everything that's ever been done on that machine. Uh, Go dig out that hard drive and go ahead and format it (laughs) before you send it off to recycling. I was totally fascinated by this story. But I do want to add the the little sort of, hey, I read these stories a lot these days. I want to add a couple of details for context because I think they're super important. So first off, the device dates to circa uh, 2011 or so, right? Afghanistan. And most of the data is people in Afghanistan and Iraq. It is clearly recovered from uh, a field situation uh in combat right so i i want to observe that like before anybody goes oh those government people they can't manage anything uh there are scenarios right where expedited removal of physical assets is difficult when and then you prioritize the humans over the devices (laughs) and it may may have been legitimately disposed of with the recycler who just didn't do anything with it didn't do anything we've had cases of that I, I thought that, you know, for me, the, the one of the, the other, which is why I wanted to highlight the, like, well, kind of, guys, this is why you also encrypt data. But at the same time, 
if they had all the physical key, like they had the keys, it was a kit, it was able to do all of that stuff. You can, you want to give some space for, okay, look, this isn't military incompetence. This is a scenario that didn't go to plan. <laughs> let's, let's give them a little bit of space for that. But Carl's lesson is exactly the right one, is, is, is I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the way devices get retired. Uh, and the process there, and we are oftentimes too casual. We're very good at the planning, the implementation. We are not very good at planning the decommissioning. Yep, uh, decommissioning as a service is that there are a number of distributors in our industry that will actually perform that function for you, and they will make sure that it is forensically unidentifiable going forward before it is repurposed into the world. Uh, many solution providers do that as well, but Dave, you're right. It's radically disappointing how few professionals who are very systematic about putting things in are equally methodical about taking things out. This morning, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal an article about uh, the glut of chips that are now flooding our industry. We spent the last two and a half, almost three years living in an allocation world, right? We couldn't ship cars or TVs or PCs or wireless APs or anything across the industry because we couldn't get enough chips. Well, we predicted a couple of years ago on this program, our industry has a nasty tendency of being late to catch up with those things, but when they do make an effort to catch up, they radically overcorrect in the other direction. And so literally two years ago, the three of us predicted there will come a day when there's not only enough chips, there's way too many chips. So here's a little baby prediction for early 2023. Decommissioning devices, old devices is going to be far more of your daily workload than it has been for the last several years because chips are available and therefore I can refresh infrastructure that I've been holding off on or been told it was six, nine, 12 months into the future before you could get devices. And there's all this stuff out there. So there's going to be price promotions. So selling hardware in Q1 is going to be a thing and you're going to decommission all of this stuff. And there's going to be so much private information that is just set in a closet or offloaded to the service provider's secure storage facility, i.e. under somebody's desk in the warehouse or whatever. It's going to be a massive issue here in 23. Well, and, and I do think that people need to be aware. This is a money-making opportunity. You know, if you're, if you're going to take, even if it's just a desktop, but if you can take any equipment out to be able to take it apart, examine it, verify that if there's a hard drive that you take that out and that you do whatever it is, either, uh, you know, nuke it or crush it or sh shred it or whatever, <laughs> that takes time, energy, and potentially money. And so we have never done that sort of thing for free. And, uh, you know, I've had, I still today, I have former clients who call me and say, nobody wants this equipment. Can you come and get it? And basically I have a, a fee for basically the equivalent of one desktop, right? So, you know, kind of, if I basically, if I can carry it out of the car, you know, in one load, <laughs> that's $65, right? Have a nice day. Uh, and, and I'll probably raise my rates soon, but, the point is, don't do this for free. Um, it is in the client's best interest that everything that's ever been done on that printer not be made public, right? <laughs> or sold on eBay, which is very common. And by the way, I think everybody knows, but I'll say it just because, uh, selling this stuff on eBay is the greatest way that a lot of data gets made public or sold on the dark web. 
You know, people just buy these things, take the data, wipe the hard drive and sell it again on eBay. So they never lose any money. Well, there you go. There's your tip of the tip of the day for making some money. Now, I actually am going to move us on to topic number two, uh, but I because because I think it's actually worth focusing on some of the consequences of the shift in work style. I'm highlighting an article in Business Insider, uh, which is entitled "The Age of the Work from Home Whistleblower." I actually everyone knows I love stats, so I'm going to actually highlight that the. Securities and Exchange Committee, which has a whistleblower program that they implemented in 2011, has received a historic jump in complaints over the past few years. In fiscal year 2021, the SEC received a 76% increase from the year prior and a 300% growth rate uh, since the start of the program. It broke the record again this year with a 136% increase from 2019. What's the big factor that they're highlighting? Remote work that the that the the disconnection of people from the physical office space has increased the skepticism that some employees have and their openness to be more critical of their employer and thus report more wrongdoings uh it was interesting to me that the tone of this article almost implies that this is a bad thing when I looked at it and I said, this seems like a very good thing. <laughs> Just what, 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 I, I wanted, I'll dive in on like, I think this is, this is actually more good than bad, but am I alone on that boat? Well, I do have to say, I appreciate the fact that they're using the system instead of just saying, oh, this is horrible. I'm going to make this stuff public and then putting in the newspaper or whatever. I, you know, so at least they're using... Uh, a, a legitimate system. But I would also point out, I think a lot of this has to do with culture. A lot, and we've talked about this before, a lot of these remote businesses are managed by people who are not good remote managers. And so they don't know how to build or maintain a culture where people don't see each other every day. And the breakdown of culture is also what leads people to say, oh, instead of just whining to each other over hot chocolate, we're going to whine uh, to somebody else. We're going to whine outside the company. Uh, so, they, you know, it's sort of like there's a lack of, of good communications inside the company, and that echoes the bad communications. Uh, so, and, and I also think that, you know, it's also the case if you send people home and you say, you know, you have to go do that, and here's a whole new set of rules, uh, you know, they may not be as loving to that corporation as they might have been otherwise. See, Carl, I think the culture observation is a very relevant and a very valid one. And I want to make sure nobody makes the mistake of thinking, well, the reason this is happening is that you cannot build culture with remote workers. Bullshit. Yes, you can. It's just different. It's more difficult. It's a skill that you need to develop and you can actually do that. But Dave, to your point, I want to observe that... Uh, the reason why this is happening more, you know, you, you've pointed out some of the possible reasons why. Uh, let, let me make the observation that one of the reasons not why is that there's more bad behavior going on in organizations. It's not like we went remote and then organizations started to behave badly. They're just getting reported more frequently. That's exactly why I would agree with you. I think it's a much better thing. I, I believe that this is good news for our culture and for business to recognize. You don't own people. You can't control people. You need to behave 
ethically and professionally, and then you won't be doing things that need to be reported to any whistleblower organizations, and therefore you're not going to get reported by your employees. But if you are not treating people well, if you are behaving ethically poorly, then when you treat your remote workers poorly, I would be interested, Dave, if there was a way to do a cross-tab in their analysis against the number of remote workers with the number of those organizations who are using remote monitoring devices or technologies on their employees, mouse trackers, keyboard trackers, webcam things. Uh, I read over the weekend that 78% of IT professionals report that their organization is using at least one of those tools to monitor their remote employees. Well, we've said before on this program, that's rude, that's micromanaging, don't do that, that's a sign of bad management, and it is not only a sign of bad culture, but it's going to poison whatever culture you currently have. But if you send me home to work and then you tell me in no uncertain terms, I do not trust you, therefore I am going to track your keyboard, track your mouse, then it's very likely that I'm going to turn around and go, oh, really, you don't trust me? How about I don't trust you either? And you know all those bad things that we've all just been going, wink, wink, nod, nod, just push them to the side and we're all on the same team? Maybe I won't be quite so willing to go along the company line and allow you to continue to get away with that. I would argue it's a breakdown of culture, as Carl says, and it is mis management in the remote environment that's causing an increase of reports. It's not an increase of bad behavior. It's just more of that bad behavior is getting tattled on. Well, the other thing that I think is important to, to highlight is is that, of course, this is the, the people that have that are going to the far extreme to have to report. Right? They are going into a formal whistleblower program for managed companies. What this does indicate is a failure of organizations to receive criticism within the organization itself. And in fact, one of the things that I took away is, you know, and this is one of those bits buried at the end of the article, but it's an element of like, well, that's what some of the researchers were saying is this actually is telling us that there is a breakdown of internal reporting systems that allow employees to report on things that need to be addressed and get them resolved internally. This isn't necessary. It is, doesn't have to be a like everything is perfect and you have to buy the company line forever. Or the other option is always report in public and go public with it. There's supposed to be a set of systems within an organization that can help help self heal for a better lack of a better phrase, and those are not doing a good enough job. And that's one of the things. Maybe they're that's related to physical location, or maybe. They're just not doing a great job. And as you have a little bit more distance between a person and the org, it becomes easier for that to be noticed of, wait a second, this is a problem, and my internal systems are not doing a good job of catching it. So I totally see that the internal systems, that this big change happened and they probably couldn't keep up. But I got to wonder how people find out where do you report this stuff? Are they being motivated by something? Like, is there is the SEC putting ads in front of them that you and I don't see because we're not in that category, right? But they're seeing ads that say, hey, do you think you need to tell us about something that's going on at work, right? <laughs> uh, or are they taking the effort to say, hmm, uh, this is my industry, who regulates it, clickety-click, and hey, Google, where can I find this, and how do I report something, and what, you know, 
there's some work involved in this, right? It's not like, uh, un unless somebody's sending around an email chain that says, hey, here are the nine places you can report shit and <laughs> get somebody in trouble. <laughs> so th there's some there's something going on there that is related to this. And I, because that seems odd that so many people have so much free time that they decide I should go Google and f figure out you know, how I report a problem with my boss. And you can imagine the extra layer of Jason Bourne work that has to go on. You got to go find an internet cafe because you don't want to be Googling that on your work device because then the bad guys are going to be able to track back to the IP address and figure out who was the tattletale. Uh, you, there's, there's so yeah, many extra layers. Yeah, but everybody's probably using their phone. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So so I think we, we can shift into our third topic here, sirs. Um, we're going to end our first episode of 2023 on some fun. We've all been spending a lot of time talking about generative AI in the last couple of weeks. Uh, stable diffusion on the image side and chat GPT on the uh, on the text side. We think of this from a professional perspective and there might be some accuracy problems. We think of this from a teacher's perspective and there might be some plagiarism problems. But dang it, let's look at the fun side, right? So we're going to hook to an article here in the show notes uh, about a gentleman who calls himself Stealthy the Time Traveler. And what he's doing is using Stable Diffusion to use, to use text descriptions of historical scenes, right? Like the building of the pyramids or uh, being chased by a woolly mammoth in the Ice Age and then inserting his own photograph into those. And so he's created a time traveler's travelogue, a photo album of me in all of these important places around history. I think this is A, super creative and fun and B, Nobody's getting hurt by this, and so it's perfectly fair within all of these things. Uh, what do you guys think about what Stealthy is doing, and what are some other fun ways we could use Stable Diffusion and ChatGPT without breaking any ethical boundaries? Well, well on the other ways to use it, I, I could totally see this being part of a history class. Like, put yourself in this scene and then tell a story. Write a story about it, and you can't use uh, GPT chat. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually like this because... You know, we, we had a story, I don't know, six months ago about the, the lady in China who spent her spare time creating fictional entries into Wikipedia and creating an entire city and all its surroundings and its history and, you know, had hundreds and hundreds of, of fake Wikipedia entries. I'd much rather see people do this in a way where you say, look, this is just creativity. I'm not trying to tell you this is reality, right? This, you know, but it is very, very creative. And we now have so many ridiculously powerful tools, you know, that you can you can get public access to tensor processors and, you know, all kinds of amazing stuff that I think the world of art is going to become much more digital uh, in a very positive way, not not creating something and pretending to be something else, but creating something and saying, look what I did. Isn't that cool? And ultimately, that's a lot of what art is about. Well, it's interesting because you went a, a different version of where my head was at. Because actually, I've, so I, I spent some time over the holiday uh, futzing with, with the tech, right? Uh, particularly with with some of the, the ability to use the stable diffusion and image creation. And my, my first reaction was, wow, this is really actually quite hard. <laughs> is is <laughs> the... Uh, the ability because there's just two parts to it. The first is getting the AI to create 
what you're envisioning is actually difficult. And then secondly, there's a lot of artifacting. You get a lot of weird images and layouts and, and people with the wrong numbers of fingers or, or like, like lots of weirdness to the subtleties of the picture that if you go down the rabbit hole of this, you will learn that lots of them start spending time fixing. AI artists spend a lot of time fixing it, getting to the point where to get a great image can take hours of time that is art <laughs> right that is and that is a talent to create that and, and it was the practical experience of using the technology to get something useful that sort of re said to me yes this is incredibly powerful we can create some incredibly new things it does solve a lot of the ability to get time to market yet there is still a lot of talent and time that will go into this. So anyone whose immediate reaction is, is, oh, this will just wipe away the need for humans and human skill. They have not spent enough time with the technology to do that. Well, and the reason that I said history class is I've, you've probably known them too. I, there's, there's always these history teachers who insist that everybody has to dress up. They have to create a story plot. They have to, you know, fit it into the time, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so that there's lots and lots of effort in that. And so you you don't you don't recreate it exactly and precisely as history was. You create something that represents your understanding of that history and how it fits in with you and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I just think this enables that at a higher level. And the fact, as you say, Dave, that it takes some work. That's what teachers like. They don't you know, if you say, give me a picture of me standing in front of, you know, the Parthenon, um, it's going to take the teacher one second to know I put no effort into that, right? <laughs> Until I right. add textures and other characters and get rid of the people who are wearing three-piece suits, <laughs> right? So, you know, you'll be able to tell whether there's effort or no effort. But I, I do think another, a new kind of expression of creativity is great because it's not tied to uh, non-fungible tokens. It's not a cryptocurrency thing. It's just, it's nobody has to go hide out on a Caribbean island. You know, uh, it's just right. art. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, and, and as you guys say, the initial spark of creativity still had to come from somewhere, from someone, right? To be, to be perfectly accurate. Uh, somebody, Stealthy in this case, had to sit back and think, you know what would be really interesting is if I could make a travelogue of myself appearing in selfies from points throughout ancient history all the way up to modern times. That's creative. That's very interesting. I think that guy deserves some kudos, right? Uh, we have to remember that people are like, you know, oh, I could come up with that. I could do that. Uh, I'm a particular fan of stand-up comedy. I talk for a living. I use words in, in my profession, and I do it for fun as well. And I am a very big fan of people who can turn a phrase and set up a scene and tell a joke in a way that surprises and delights you to the point that you laugh out loud so hard that you might, you might stop breathing. I think that that is one of the highest forms of art in the world. And I think it is because I have absolutely zero capacity to do that thing. I use words. <laughs> right. I talk for a living. People pay me to talk for a living. They do not pay me to tell jokes because I don't have timing. I don't have that creative spark that those kinds of artists do. And that's why I find it particularly fascinating to watch them use this tool that I use 
every single day, but they did it in a way that made me go, you're better, that's awesome, and that spark of creativity is super entertaining, right? I think this could give many more people that opportunity for creative expression that right now they're like, well, I can't paint, so I could never do something like that, but now they can bring these things to the fore. I think the other side of this conversation, though, guys, is the, uh, the zero to 60 speed with which we went from you know, there's this thing called generative AI to it's literally dinnertime conversation for non-technology professionals, right? We went through the half-life of this technology in less than a month. And I can tell you personal experience over the holidays, um, one family member actually runs a, uh, a custom application development software coding uh, business. And we had a very detailed conversation about, so can I just go to ChatGPT and say, hey, write me an application that does ABC equation and I don't need to pay you guys for coding anymore. And he was very, very adamant about explaining to me why that was trash and that was never going to work out. I have another family member that works in the construction architecture design industry. And uh, they were like, absolutely convinced this is the future guys we're going to have more interesting structures more uh, more aesthetically pleasing structures that are much more cost effective to build and maintain because ai is going to translate my spark of an idea into something that can be represented in the in the real world i think we have no clue what the capabilities of this are and just how rapidly they're going to be expressed. And it's a little bit scary and it's a whole lot entertaining. So I'm, I'm over here going, bring it on because nobody wants to use chat GPT to talk about the things I talk about for a living. That's, that's not nearly creative enough. See, you're teasing. You never know. They could, they, they could be coming for the podcaster's job. They could. They <laughs> now could. I, I, I will say the other thing that I think is missing is that there, and is that creativity. Like I think the, the one thing that the AIs are, are so far, I want to give space that they may change, but right now, it's the spark of creative design, the fla the flavor or the inspiration. They're quite good at creating generic, uh, and we are going to see a flood of generic uh, coming out. But it is the the actual creative spark is still missing from some of these pieces. You either have to have the creative spark to ask for the right image and then design it or particularly on the writing side it's a little soulless right it's a little you can get things that mimic but not quite the same so we're safe for a short period most important point of the year so far <laughs> which is this is going to become a great tool for brainstorming and you know seeding creativity but the creativity is still inside the gray matter in your head and with that brilliant observation, we come to the end of episode 197 of the Killing It, Killing Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.